Welcome to Secrets from the Saddle podcast. I'm Sylvie Daou, your host, fellow cyclist, bike club founder, cycling coach, bike race junkie, just truly super passionate about cycling. My journey with cycling started 20 years ago when I opened a spin studio, started a women's race team, and founded a women's only cycling club called Cycle Fit Chicks. I'm super thrilled to reveal all aspects that make the world of cycling operate. I'm so excited to be able to bring you interesting people from around the world, pro cyclists, recreational cyclists, coaches, event organizers, bike shop owners, everything and everyone you need to know or ever wondered about when it comes to cycling. I know you'll enjoy this episode. Hey friends, before we get into this next amazing episode, and I apologize for being tardy this week, um, I just want to let you know about my winter training cycling program. Now, it's a membership. You can jump in at any time. What you're going to do is learn all about the cycling skills online that are going to make you a much better cyclist, mountain biker, gravel rider in the spring, or even on Swift if you're doing that and you're racing right now. Potentially, you're missing some of the key skills and fundamentals that are going to take you to the next level. So I just want to put that out there. If you're looking to um, improve upon those skills and techniques that you feel that you're lacking, this might be the program for you. We have Thursday night skill sessions, Saturday group rides, Tuesday night uh, intervals or races, and you put all the skills to work so they make sense and you are working towards achieving your goals for the spring. And hopefully that's one of two things, uh, maintaining your summer fitness, improving your efficiency, and maybe working towards a much bigger goal, like a hundred kilometer event, like some of us. So if that's you, I would love you to go to your phone and text the word cycling to 819-809-0999. And remember, it doesn't matter what kind of fitness level you're at, where you live, everything is, um, the skill sessions are recorded. We join up on Swift. Uh, we have people from the United States and we have people from the UK it's totally amazing and doable, and this could be for you. So remember, text the word cycling to 819-809-0999, and just check out the details there. Take care and enjoy this next episode. Hey, welcome everyone to another episode of Secrets and Saddle, All Things Cycling Podcast with your host, Sylvie, but I have a really cool um episode with you today for you today with my friend Kim Farah. We have been friends for a long time. She started racing with me in my master's racing program and I think it was like 2010, I can't even remember. Or maybe it was earlier than that. But then she went on after her stint with us and she's continues to participate in cyclocross and gravel now. And she has also done one of the most amazing hikes through hike, this, the PCT. 
which is in California. And she's gotten into um, bike touring. So we have a lot of things that uh, we're going to talk about today that I'm really, really curious about. So without ado, let's get to talking to Kim, who is right in my neighborhood of Gatineau. Let's talk to her here. Take care and enjoy the episode. All right, welcome back to another episode of Secrets from the Saddle, All Things Cycling Podcast. Your host, Sylvie, and I have my good friend here, Kim Farah, who is also in Chelsea. And uh, so we have a lot of things that we're going to talk about today because Kim and I have a lot of history. Um, we're both in the same area. She started racing with my pro with my group and then she's gone on to cyclocross and then we were just talking about how she did some biathlon in there and then into bike touring and, and then the hiking, which I really want to talk about. So I am just super excited about having Kim because she's just like an average woman like the rest of us. And these are the best yeah. stories ever that we can share on the podcast because you know it's just average people doing really cool things really and and i was like i know kim you need to be on my podcast she's like what i'm like just sign <laughs> book yourself in but kim i'm so excited to have you here find things that are slightly terrifying and you do them anyway yes and she's a great example of a couple of these things so kim i'm super excited to have you here um just have you grab you with me. <laughs> All right. Now, the first question I always ask is how you got into cycling. How'd you get into uh, cycling? And how I long ago was that? A long time. Oh, let me think. I was 13. Um, my dad was in the military, had bad knees, and he was always really key, a keen cyclist back when it was not cool to wear cycling shorts in public. Um, so... <laughs> Yeah, that was a long time ago on, on this road bike he'd built up from parts wearing cycling shorts and literally traffic would stop when he went by um because it was apparently <laughs> so weird and uh and when i was 13 i decided i was going to be a cyclist too and i got to ride oh my god it was you know those old ccm targas with the women's frame the what they called a mixed frame was they it like a v in the center yeah, kind of boat anchor of a bike I got that. That was my bike. It was it was weight training. And I just started <laughs> every day. We lived outside of Kingston near Bath, Ontario. And I used oh. to just go out every day and just, you know, ride on the little roads and dodge the potholes and get chased by dogs and geese. And <laughs> yeah, and I just got hooked. I just really liked it. It was just freedom. It got me out of the house, got me away from my parents. I mean, they're lovely people, but you know, teenagers. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think and that's so our story. A lot of us freedom, 37 freedom, thirty-seven years, seven years. What? Yeah. Oh, say that again. So I've been a cyclist for thirty-seven. Thirty-seven years. years. That's what I thought I heard. So now, how did you get into my program? And then, did I approach you, or did you join? Did you come through CycleFit Chicks, the club, and then join the race program the with me? You approached me about joining the racing gang because, yeah, I would not have seen myself as a racer particularly, but you were very encouraging. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I love, like, I see potential in everybody, but some people just exude it a little bit more. And I'm pretty sure that's how I got 
you know, like gravitated to you. It's like, Hey, would you like to do something different and cool with the rest of us? And yeah, so you spent a year with us and, and how did that, how was that? I still remember doing the Preston street crit and love it. I just love that, you know, just wailing around corners on a closed race course. Nothing makes me happier. But <laughs> after a year, like I found, I did find that was my first time I'd ever had a, a training program. I'd never followed a training plan before. As a teenager, I did the weekly time trials with my club. I belonged to Bella Club Kingston. I was like the only teenage girl in the whole club. Um, so the only structure I'd ever had before racing with you was literally doing weekly time trials as a teenager. Um, right. That, and so I'd never followed a training plan, never had any sort of truck structure, never had any sort of arc to my training over the course of like a training season. <laughs> that was all brand new. Yeah. Um, but of course, I, I did get a little overtrained and burnt out at one point, I think. And I think that was when I decided to give that and road racing kind of scared me because I'm not that strong. Or I certainly wasn't. I'm stronger now than I was then. Mm. And then road racing was pretty much a solo time trial when I got dropped by the bunch, which happened fairly so uh yeah <laughs> i know how you feel cyclocross where you can be dead last but you're going in a circle so it doesn't matter cyclocross <laughs> is my jam i know you know what i was always too tired to to hit cyclocross season after a summer of cycling yeah. and and also I, d I only did get to do one full season of cyclocross and that was in 2008 I believe, or 2009. Yeah. And I, I went to nationals in Edmonton yes. and I came third. I know. And then I never did it again. <laughs> you know, stop at a high point. Yeah, that's right. But I did honestly, like it's, it was just one of those things you had to make a choice. Cause like I, I raced and I rode all summer and it was all consuming with weekends away. It was impossible to say, Hey, can I spend every Sunday away racing somewhere and on, you know, like, it's just like not um, going to go over too well. <laughs> that too. Well, in the day when I was, well, back when we started, it was in Ottawa. So it was before yeah. they got, before they got banned. <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah. And then it moved outside of the city. So I was just like, as much as I really liked it too, it was just something I had to make a choice. So mm -hmm. like my you. marriage, that's, you know, that's literally why I lost my athlon was at a certain point, there's only so much time in the training year to commit to one thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, biathlon's all winter, right? All winter. And then you, or did you, was it, it was all year round? Yeah. Cause for shooting, um, mm. for shooting, you shoot. Yeah. You need to shoot twice a week really to get any good. Um, ideally shooting once a week, it's probably not enough. Um, so right from the, the get-go, I was doing shooting training twice a week and then all the other ski training. Um, yeah, it's pretty all-consuming. And, and I'm not like somebody who, I mean, I know people who they just start skiing and all of a sudden they're just really strong. I am not those people. I am like literally people say, oh, Kim, you're being too, you know, too, uh, you're being too down on yourself. When I say like, I am utterly average. I am really, I have no... <laughs> Big athletic gifts. I really don't. I am obsessive about sports, well-being. Really, not gifted in any of them. Um, but <laughs> you make me laugh. Like I don't have the pressure of like podiums and achievements. Uh, like, I don't. Yeah. 
I mean, I did in biathlon because, you know, I'd go to a race and there'd be three other women. So I podium like every single race. It was like, yeah. Yeah, love that. That doesn't matter. There's only three of us. That yeah, doesn't. I was so much hardware from biathlon and it was literally just because I showed up. Um, but yeah. <laughs> hey, but sometimes yeah, that's the only thing. I ran and trained, trained quite hard for it. So it was really hard to step away and do other things. And so after mm-hmm. four years of it, I decided uh, it, was, it was time to let it go and I, I sold my rifle. And then COVID hit, so the timing was good. Oh, perfect. So for everybody who's not entirely sure what biathlon is, biathlon is cross-country skiing and shooting, like yeah. uh, rifle ranges. Uh, ranges. Yeah, so you, you ski, and then you have to stop, and you have to lower your heart rate enough to actually focus on hitting your target. And then you take off, and you do it again. How many times is it in a, in a course? It depends on the race format. Sometimes there's, there's, you know, you shoot uh, prone and standing two times mm-hmm. uh, each, and sometimes it'll be three times each. It, it actually just depends on the race format. Yeah. It, okay. Basically for, for women racing in sort of what would in cycling, what would be the equivalent of like senior women's category or master's women, you race for about an hour. It, it meshes really well with cyclocross because basically it's, you go eyeballs bleeding for 45 minutes to an hour. <laughs> And then you're done. I, yeah, I know that's one thing I liked about cyclocross. But so we were just joking that Kim should come over to my place and pick off a couple turkeys that are eating my chicken feed that just don't go away. They go, they come, they feed, we chase them off. They, they hang, they leave for about an hour and then they come back. And we've been trying to, I don't know if anybody's sensitive about this, but like, if you're a hunting, if you're a hunter, well, you understand what's going on. It's hunting season, and <laughs> we're just like trying to take them out. And they're also eating my my animals' food, so I think yeah, it's really? fair game. Yeah. So yeah. So I was telling Kim she had to come over and and uh, take care of some of them. <laughs> but so after that, like I noticed that um, you got into well, this is when I I hadn't seen you or, uh, for a while. And I noticed that you did this cycle tour. So it's it's something that's um, specific to this particular region. And I'd love you to talk about that. What dis- made you decide to get into um, doing that? Uh, well, so I got into what's called bike packing. And bike packing. Bike packing differs from bike touring is really instead of having panniers and, you know, uh, racks bolt, bolted onto your bike, you have sock bags. So like a frame bag, uh, a roll, a handlebar roll or a bag, and a, a seat bag, a big seat bag on your saddle. And the advantage of that gear partly is you can ride in bumpy off-road terrain, terrain and you don't have to worry about bolts snapping or racks failing. It's all soft, except Velcros on your bike. It's also lighter. And I did come to bike packing from ultralight backpacking. So I already had lightweight low volume gear. And so it was, for me, it was, it was like the perfect combination. I love backpacking and I love riding bikes. And it's like, oh my God, this is like, this is beautiful (laughs) marriage of the two. Like what's not to love? Yeah. And that locally two skiers that I know really well, two kick-ass cross-country skiers, Jen Adams and Eric Betridge, um, are also longtime cyclists, former former cyclocross racers, mm-hmm. uh, just all around really cool people. 
and they spent years scoping out and um, designing this local bike packing route called the Long Oh, no way. Oh, really? And it's about 800 kilometers. It basically goes in a giant circle through a, roughly 400 kilometers on the Ontario side of the Ottawa River, and then roughly 400 and some on the uh, Quebec side of the Ottawa River. It goes in a big circle, and it's meant to sort of celebrate the roots and terrain around the river systems that, you know, the, the driver, the log drivers of yore, um, you know, ran logs down. Right. And, so there's lots of like little backcountry roads. You're close to a lot of little rivers. Um, the terrain is gnarly as heck. Like I think I saw Jesus at one point in the North Pond Parklands in the half of the route that I rode last year. I was I was very underbiked at the time. <laughs> underbiked. There's a day where it was very isolated. I was going up and down these like bangers of hills over and over. I, I had just come so, off of a summer of uh, being non-weight bearing due. I tore a ligament in my foot the summer. Oh, so that. you go and do something like that. <laughs> yeah. And just decided after a month back on my feet that I should go ride this route. So I was like physically not really ready for it. And uh, the gearing on my bike I discovered was not really low enough for my fitness level. And so, yeah. <laughs> I did half of the route. I did about 100 kilometers a day and I rode about 500k. And it was really fun. And so I still have the Quebec side of the route to come back and do. And then at some point, I plan on doing the entire thing. But uh, I need to train a bit more for that. <laughs> yeah, 100k a day. That's oh, And to be honest, for bike packing, for bike packing racing, that's like baby mileage. That's nothing. There are people who will ride like 250 kilometers in a day and no but how much how long did it take you that was just kind of riding all day it was the fall so the days were short so yeah. just, like, really it's not hard to ride 100k a day even on on you know gravel roads and and sort of off-roady rough terrain yeah even at like my pub you know i sort of puddle along but just ride all day it's the same way i do my long distance hiking i i don't do anything particularly fast i just stay out there you're steady yeah. <laughs> slow and steady <laughs> slow and steady so yes. tell me about the route because you did the ontario so where did it start in ontario and where did you finish the official start i believe it's in i think it's in elmont is, is okay. the official start of the route. so next next july will be the second grand depart of the log drivers waltz and so people who want to do it when there's a big gang of people doing it like bike packing race style where everybody starts mm -hmm. in the same same time and goes ripping around the the route um i think it is july 29th if you go to the log drivers waltz website uh they'll have the date but anyway if you if you, if you do it that way at the grand depart you'd be starting in almont ontario and then following the loop round from there where i live in the gatnos the route goes right by my house so I actually started <laughs> and rode, rode south into Ottawa from my house and then rode around, did the whole Ontario section and finished across the river at Portage du Fort and finished in Shawville. And that was when I, when I sort of ran out of time that last oh, really? that, that took five <laughs> days and that was, like, I, that was as much time as I had. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. So the course record is something bonkers like two and a half days 
two like and a half days. Yeah, it's, it's mind blowing. There's a guy who's done it in something like two and a half days. And the fastest woman did it really fast last year, too. So, yeah, I mean, like, I'm not kidding. Do they bother bringing I mean, anything? Like, like very normal people speed. <laughs> <laughs> okay, aside from them, yeah. what about everybody else? Everybody else. The cool thing about it is, is there are places around the route that are marked where you can camp. Um, or if you are a more intrepid soul, uh, you can just kind of stealth camp wherever it's not clearly private property, which has always been my modus operandi around here when I go bike packing. I, I never pay for camping. <laughs> I, well, oh, you I said so. Where there's there's no signs that say it's private property, where there are no fences, where there are no gates, and I hide because I, <laughs> I not only bike packing as a solo woman. Um, uh -huh. My husband has a chronic illness, so he would love to do this stuff and he would really enjoy it, but but he can't. Um, so I've done it all just, you know, uh, a long weekend here, a three or four day stretch there. Um, just when I get a good window of time and uh, maybe a good weather window, I just go pack my bike up and go. And so oh my part of my stealth camping, yeah, part of the reason for stealth camping is, is I feel safer. I, I wouldn't sleep if I was like in a campground surrounded by other people who know, oh, two campsites down. There's a woman by herself. Like, yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. I, I'm sure be fine, but I would not sleep well. Yeah. Oh. Oh no, I've seen I've seen women camping by themselves in campgrounds. Only like when I was in PEI like this summer. They I, I saw a couple. Just me personally, it makes me nervous. And I'd rather oh. Yeah. Well, yeah, I know I see the point and uh, just sort of like to hide. And I've, I've watched some other women who are backpack, like more bike tours who are female. Yeah. And that would scare me. I think more like, you know, you pull on onto like a beach or something or like off road. And yeah, I think I would, that's where I would be a little bit more eyes yeah. wide open like, all night long. Yeah, it's funny. A lot of people say, aren't you worried about bears? And it's like, no, I'm not worried about bears. No worry about, about bears. <laughs> it's the two-legged problem. Um, yeah, it's, 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 to be honest, it's just meeting men in the back country by myself. Most of them are absolutely nice guys who would, you know, be protective rather than cause trouble, but you just never know. And so, yeah, my comfort level is to go. And when I'm camped, I, I camp. If I'm by myself, I camp somewhere where no one knows I'm there. Yeah, no, I'd see that. No bright red. <laughs> no. Hi. I mean that—that's the problem this time of year. Is you have to worry about hunters, of course. So it's. Like, oh, well, you wouldn't be out there this time of the year because that's. <laughs> I don't. I don't do it much this time of year because of that. Yeah, it's just. Yeah, it's a little too risky. I do have some yeah. international large stuff, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so where didn't you start acquiring? all the gear because i mean because you said you started hiking yeah, like light pack hiking first of all, um because we wanted to go backpacking and if you if you go down the ultralight backpacking rabbit hole it what it what it ends up meaning is that two parents and two kids you can carry all the stuff if you if it's really lightweight and the kids don't yeah. have to carry more than you know their stuffy and their jacket and some snacks and we used to go down to the adirondacks and mm -hmm. uh, Hike and camp and it meant we could go on like two or three day backpacking trips and you know even with all the food you'd need to bring our gear was light enough that bernie and i could carry it and still have fun oh you're not like 60 pound packs basically oh, no. like, I've yeah. done 
a seven day trip down in the Adirondacks with eight, with seven days of food and fuel and my pack weighed 21 pounds. 21 pounds? Was it by yourself? Yes. Okay. So did you bring at least one change of clothes? Seven days of food and seven days of fuel. Water's plentiful there, so the water part's easy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like the whole idea with ultralight backpacking is uh, your backpack, your tent, your sleep system, your clothes, everything that's non-consumable. So accepting fuel, water, and food, your pack would weigh 10 pounds or less. Okay. What kind of backpack, what kind of um, sleeping bag would you, and of course, like this would be what in the summer that you would do this. So you can just use a very light, small backpack, like a uh, sleeping bag. Yes and no. It depends on the gear you have. So a lot of ultralight backpackers will get what's called a quilt and it's okay. like kind of like a sleeping bag that doesn't have a back on it. And it, and there's elastic straps that go around your sleeping pad that you can clip the oh. sides of the quilt that when you turn over, it doesn't like, you don't get gaps and drafts. Oh. You can use them down to like, to, to freezing really, or below freezing. Um, at a certain point, it makes more sense to have a mummy bag, say some minus, minus five Celsius or more. Um, I wouldn't want my quilt then, but. Where do you I, get a quilt? Where do you well, get, where do you get one? There's, there's a couple Canadian makers now that make them. Um, but when I bought my original, the original one I bought, oh, 15 years ago, maybe from an enlightened equipment in the U.S. Okay. And, and it weighs, it weighs under a pound. It's supposed to be good down to 30 Fahrenheit. Um, don't know what that is in Celsius. I should. Let's call it zero. Okay. The one I, now, the one I bought for the PCT, because I knew the, that one was not going to be warm enough. I bought a new one from the same company. So enlightened equipment in the States, they're in Minnesota. Um, and it's good down to 10 degrees Fahrenheit, which is minus, oh, I don't know. Three? Celsius, I don't know. Celsius, something. Um, oh. Because a lot of women on the PCT, because the altitude, it gets really cold at night. Heck, for the first month. Oh, yeah, for sure. I would, I was wearing, like, there were nights where I wore all my clothes. Uh -huh. And with that 10 degree quilt was still, like, just warm enough. Um, because it actually. To sleep. Uh huh. So tell me more about your equipment, because I think that's really cool. Like I'm going to check something I've never even realized I had sleeping bags like that, and it yeah, makes and total they're sense. Not, they're not as bulky as a full mummy bag that would well, yeah. have all the down baffles that are under your body getting squashed that aren't really insulating you. <laughs> that's the idea. Eliminate that part. Eliminate the insulation that you're laying on top of that you're yes. squashed out of why have that weight if it's not going to serve any purpose so you you need to consider for a proper sleep system yet the sleep pad you you sleep on has to account for the temperature range you're going to be in as well then so what sleep, sleep pad, pad do you have i've got a thermarest newer x light it's a it thermarest that's a brand yeah thermarest is the brand the one that i have and it's really popular among sort of ultra lighty people is the NeoWare X Lite. And I have the women's one, which has an R value of 5.6, I think. Uh, the regular one, the men's one or the regular one, is has a little lower R value. I think it's, it's 4.3 or something. But anyway, okay. plenty warm enough to get you into the shoulder seasons. 
um, to get you, you could sleep on that. For most people, that would be warm enough um, down to zero or a little below to, to insulate you from the, the cold coming up from the ground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And do you have um, a bivy bag? Is that what you use for your sleeping? Or do you have like a small one person tent? What I used on the PCT and I have been using bike packing is a tarp that has a mosquito netting skirt. Oh. A floorless shelter. So I've got uh, a ground sheet, my thermarest and my quilt that I sleep on on the ground sheet and then my tarp. And here, because of the heavy bug pressure most of the year, the tarp I bought has a mosquito netting sort of skirt around it that just drapes mm -hmm. down the ground to keep the mosquitoes out. Um, that's what I used on my through hike this summer. It was fantastic. Oh yeah. Um, but I'm also in the process right now of just buying a rectangular tarp um, because I'm going to go down to Arizona this winter. I'm hoping and do some bike packing in the mountains and the desert and down in the in the, like in the American Southwest. You can get by without mosquito protection. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You just have to worry about other things crawling into your tent. Yeah, I got a bunch of shelters. Let's just say I've got like a nice lightweight two-man tent. I've mm -hmm. got my tarp that has the mosquito bug net on the bottom. Um, that's my most heavily used shelter. We've got yeah. a couple of tarp tents that we bought that we used for backpacking with kids when they were smaller, um, and then we've got a big car camping tent <laughs> like most people have. Yeah, I got. Yeah, the the fifty pounder. <laughs> Yeah, we're still a little too ultra lighting for that, but yeah, you know, it's just one that certainly four people can sleep in comfortably. I know mine's like a condo. It's like six plus. You can stand up in it, but when I go to events, I love that because I can like, you know, you saw it when you were at Halliburton. Yeah, that's the last time I saw her. Oh, yeah. Halliburton. So civilized than all my stuff that I have to crawl into. Yes, that's right. And I'm like. I prefer, you know, I can even pull my bike in there and keep everything. Um, but, uh, but that's best specific, <laughs> but when camping, we, um, we downgraded to two single, two double man tents that are much lighter that we can. So one for the kids and one for us. Yeah, and then I'm like, gonna, like go somewhere on foot. Exactly. Yeah. And I've always wanted to get back into backpacking because I used to do a lot of it when I was in my twenties. Um, but I just have not, cause I was thinking, you know, I was trying to find a place around here and maybe you can help that, um, you can go for, you know, like three days backpacking. Yeah. Where would you go hand? Is it like, is Frontenac Park, like the only place? Frontenac Park is a lovely place to do that actually. especially mm -hmm. Yeah. That would be one of my favorites. That was actually the very first place I backpacked in. Okay. It's yeah, it's fairly safe. We went uh, backpacking there this summer and my husband canoed in and we backpacked into, um, into our tent, like our camp area. So it was kind of nice. So we had the canoe in there and, uh, and to do things like on the, the pond or the lake that we were on. Yeah. yeah but that... Because you can do loops there too. Yeah. And it's not super hilly. It's yeah. pretty flat. Yeah. Yeah. I could jog in actually. That's how nice those, those trails are. Now, what about your clothes? So t-shirt. Clothes for backpacking? Yeah. Um, well, part of the sort of the ultralight ethos is you bring the absolute minimum mm -hmm. while also accounting for safety and your own personal needs for warmth. Like I'm 
I, I'm a small person. I once I get cold, I have a really hard time warming myself mm-hmm. back up. So um, I always make sure I've got something that's really warm. Like when I when I hiked the PCT, I had a down puppy jacket and a lightweight one, and I, I just did yeah. nine ounce one with me for the entire trail. Um, that I didn't need that often, but when I needed it, it was the only thing that would have worked. And so, right. uh, like for me, that's a safety matter is to have something really warm so that if you get yeah. chilled or it's cold at night, you are going to stay warm enough that your hands function and yeah, you, know, you can sleep. Yeah. 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 So uh, puffy, uh, always rain gear. Some people say, ah, you know, if it's the summer and it's, it's warm rain, it's not bad. I have, I have <laughs> gotten hypothermia in the Adirondacks when it was plus five and raining like got so got so cold in a in a you know quick rain shower that my hands almost didn't work and realized yeah. that whoa I you know if it starts to rain and it's five degrees celsius or lower that I have to sort of aggressively pay attention to how warm I am so that I yeah yeah. Um, yeah yeah and so yeah and it's Rain pants are good. Not everybody will use rain pants. Some people ice and on the PCT for the first half, like through the desert, I carried wind pants. Um, and they oh. were fantastic because you know they were like these sort of three ounce rip stop nylon pants that I could just pull on in the morning over my running shorts and uh, they keep the chill off. They they breathed a little bit, so they didn't get mm-hmm. clammy rain pants do. Uh, I'd throw them on at lunchtime or at breaks if it was cooler and uh and they were just they, they were fantastic and then when i at the latter end of the hike as i was heading into oregon and washington where theoretically you may encounter days of rain um i was lucky we had very little rain um, yeah i actually bought lightweight rain pants and carried those for the the last month month and a half of the hike uh-huh. and, and pants home because I wasn't going to carry both. You see, that's the thing with ultralight hiking is the minimum of clothing that will meet all your needs, keep you warm, keep you safe, but no extras. Like for a four-ish month hike where I walked from Mexico to Canada, 4,250 kilometers, I had a puffy jacket, a rain jacket. I had one shirt that I hiked in. I had one uh, other thin, light top and bottom that I could sleep in. I had wind pants or rain pants. I never had the two at the same time. I had two pairs of socks. I had two pairs of underwear. I had one sports bra and that was it. So the hilarious thing was you would go into a trail town and you knew who the through hikers were because to do our laundry, we had to put on our rain gear because there was nothing else. Anything <laughs> else needed to be watched. So if you saw somebody walking around in, you know, it's like a hundred degrees Fahrenheit, you know, like 35 Celsius outside <laughs> and you be walking around in a puffy down jacket and rain pants they're naked underneath those clothes and everything else is in the laundry <laughs> oh my gosh because you're gonna yeah stink. like there's nothing you can do you're gonna be smelly there's no way around it um the only thing people will tend to have extras of is socks because you need to keep your feet healthy yeah um, so that you can keep walking and other yes. than that there's not much point having extra clothes some people would get all fancy and they'd have town clothes like whoa i was not willing to carry town town clothes, clothes. <laughs> yeah. it would literally just be you know like an extra t-shirt and an extra pair of shorts or something yeah um, yeah some have like a lightweight sort of dress made it as some sort of sporty fabric maybe 
Oh, that would have been nice. They, they'd be in town looking all fancy, but these were also people who probably had camp shoes and I never carried camp shoes. I just had my trail runners. Um, oh, you didn't have a change of shoes. Mm. Cause some people Those... like, like extra shoes or sandals for water crossings or to wear in town. And yeah. Like, yeah. Like absolutely not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. I well, think I would probably like, I, you know, I weigh about 105 now. Normally, before I hit the trail, I weighed 115. I lost 10 pounds pretty quickly. And then uh, at some point on the trail, I lost another 10 pounds. I'm sure my weight got down to like 95, like dripping wet. And <laughs> oh, your poor mom. Oh my God. My, my parents were freaking out. It was hilarious, actually. All my all of my friends back at home that were following along were looking at the pictures and sending me panicked messages on Instagram about how <laughs> And I was like, it is what it is, guys. I'm eating everything I can. Yeah. <laughs> where I'm going with this is, is that as a percentage of my body weight, like even if my pack is as light as possible, it still works out to, uh, you know, 20% of my body weight. Um, oh, yeah, I guess. So how was, was yours like 25 pounds? Huh? Oh, yeah, was it like my base weight for the Pacific Crest Trail, the, my pack without food or water or fuel was 10 and a half pounds. Okay, so this is like Kim. So she, this summer, she disappeared for like four months and went and did this epic four month hike along the West Coast. Was it, you said from Mexico to, to Canada? To Canada. Yeah. And, and that's, so that's what we're talking about right now. So she went from bike packing to getting in to this to this hike because not everybody can get in because remember you're you said you're in a lottery and you, yeah. <laughs> you got the call you're like oh my god like, <laughs> yes i'm going <laughs> and so and so that's what we we're talking about we we're talking about food and well i haven't talked about food yet because i want to know about that but the lightweight gear and clothing because i mean i'd like to try bike touring or bike packing, but I know that I'm just like, I have to set aside a couple hundred, maybe a thousand dollars just <laughs> to get started. Um, Probably not even that much, to be honest, you'd be surprised. I think a lot of people are, uh, are getting rid of and upgrading their stuff and I could buy yeah, some, well, one of the, you know, like say if you get one of the bike packing saddle bags and they have like the, I don't know, you know, they sort of stick out behind the saddle. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah those that's maybe mm, 200 bucks mm -hmm. lash a dry bag onto your handlebars so you don't need to do anything there that's what i did originally oh um, okay i got lots yeah. of dry bags yeah exactly and then it's you know and, and 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 the aim is to keep the weight balanced between front and back uh, as much as you can and did then, you have a v like um for your bike frame that's the only place where it's a little more complicated you can buy ready-made ones but they may not fit your frame very well and, and might not maximize all the space there uh -huh. uh, i sewed my own oh no one who looks at it will go wow where'd you buy that it's very obviously sewed by me inexpertly <laughs> so i made one for for my my hardtail and one for my cross bike that i also use for gravel and bike packing yeah and so the advantage of having a full frame bag is that you put you put out you put anything that's heavy. That's where it goes. It's in your frame bag. You know, if you're going to carry water in in a bladder in your frame bag, uh, put your fuel okay. canister in your frame bag. Put your tools and your spare tube in your frame bag. Like if there's anything particularly weighty, you want it as low in the frame as possible. 
And so it, it's nice to have a frame bag instead of just having the main triangle filled with a couple water bottles and bottle cages. That's right. not advantage of the space very well. But then yeah. where do you put water? Uh, people get little stem bags that sort of loop onto the handlebars right oh, beside Oh, I've seen those. And, yeah. And the water bottles in those. I usually have one water bottle in, in a stem bag. The other stem bag is full of my snacks, the stuff so I can yeah. keep eating. And, uh, and then I have extra water in like a platypus uh, hydro pack bag. Yeah. Okay. Well, that makes total sense. So let's talk about food because you can only carry so much when you're hiking on that trail. Um, and how far apart were all the villages that you could effectively stop at? Well, on the Pacific Crest Trail, um, Southern California, where you start, is pretty, con it, it's pretty, it breaks you in easy. Um, the first 40 miles, you stop at 20 miles and at 40 miles and there's a resupply. Like there's a, a, a you know, a, a crappy little, basically a convenience store, or you can mail yourself a box of stuff to be waiting for you there. So, okay. you know, I started with 10 mile days because I went into it, like looking at what makes people quit their hike. The most common thing is they get way too excited at the start and they injure themselves and have to quit. And so my plan was initially to do at least the first hundred miles doing 10 mile days. Even though I did, you know, a lot of hiking before I left, I actually didn't have the stamina to walk all day. And certainly right. not all day in the heat, because it was it was hot for a Canadian coming from winter. <laughs> <laughs> and so 10 mile days meant my first food carry was two days of food. And my second food carry was two more days of food. And then after that, it was like three day or four day food carries, um, which is very manageable. Okay. The biggest food carry I had on the PCT was in the Sierra. I had an eight day carry in a bear canister and that was heavy. That, that was the heaviest my pack ever was. Um, oh, you had to that, put it in a, in a canister? Right. When you go through the Sierra Nevada, you have to use a hard sided bear canister. So you can't use an ursac, which are those, you know, sort of Kevlar material bags. I use that at home. When yeah. I like um, you can't use an ursac in the Sierra. You have to have a, an actual hard sided bear canister. Yeah. So did you buy that when you got there? Like, no, closer I, to... I actually own one here. I've got a small one here that I rarely use, but when you need it, you need it. It's kind of nice to have one. Um, so yeah, if you ever need to borrow one, I've got one. In the Sierra, awesome. the one I, have, I was worried would be too small. And so I actually rented a carbon fiber one from Wild Ideas in California called the Barricade. I rented a barricade weekend and it's got, I think it's uh, 650 cubic inches of volume. So the Bear Vault 450, there's clear plastic bear canisters you can get from Mountain Equipment Co-op. They're called the Bear Vaults. Um, they're the most common kind. And there's two sizes. There's one that's like the Bear Vault 450 and it's about 450 cubic inches. And then there's a bigger one that's, uh, I don't know how many, but it's like twice as big. That one that's twice as big is the one people most commonly rent on the PCT to go through the Sierra. I knew that one would be too big for me. So the right. one I rented was a carbon fiber one that was like literally halfway between the smaller bear vault and the bigger bear vault. It weighed the same as the smaller bear vault, but held like 50% more volume. So it, it right. gave me more volume. Because I've gotten six days of food into my little bear vault. Yeah. Choosing things very judiciously and removing packaging and Stuff. yeah 
Now, did you, is that something you slide into your backpack? Yeah, some people will yeah, strap so it on the backpack, but that's not very ergonomic. Um, no. Mine fit inside my pack. Oh, that's good. Okay. Because yeah. we have some, yeah, we have. not comfortable, but it does yeah. fit yeah, no, you have this like rigid thing smashed against your back. Like mm -hmm. everybody had had some sort of banged up something. Like I had these weird lumps on the bottom of my spine for like a month after the Sierra from like the bear canisters smashing into my back all day long. Oh um, my god. Yeah, we have canisters not... like that for canoe camping. Mm -hmm. Like smaller ones and uh that yeah, you can so put they're... like you strap a harness on. And you can carry it yeah yeah oh well that's cool so then sierra everybody keeps their food in a bag and you're supposed to do the pct hang which is a way of of throwing a rope up over a tree um and and then the rope is not tied off to the tree it actually there's a way of doing it with a little carabiner and a stick or something so that the rope just dangles straight down from the branch and the bag is on one end and it's suspended and there's nothing tied off to the tree trunk because the bears have learned to hunt for the rope. <laughs> so it's to fend off that possibility. Oh my god, you have to go through like a course <laughs> when you get go into there? Like this is how you hang it. <laughs> if the ranger stops you, they will ask you if you know how to do it. Um, and they'll look for people to have properly hung food loads of through hikers just sleep with their food in their country, <gasps> use it as a pillow. And I have to confess in the last month of the trail in Washington, where there are lots of black bears and I saw them regularly, I was so tired. I just slept with my food. There were nights where I was literally like, fine bear, like take me quickly because I am too tired to hang my damn food up. And I slept oh yeah, trying to sling that thing. Oh yeah, I, was just, I get in it like eight o'clock at night. It's almost dark. I'm absolutely cooked because all I've walked like fifty kilometers that day. Yeah. And I, like no, I'm not hanging my food, and I'm surrounded by other campers doing the same thing. So I'm just kind of going, <laughs> maybe his food smells better than mine, and he'll get eaten by the bear first, and I can just run away. <laughs> yeah. I was like, yeah, oh, okay. He looks more juicier than me, anyways. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> So tell me, okay, Kim, so that's all fine and good. So tell me about some of those like high times and low times on the trail. Like, I don't suppose you brought a journal with you because that would be extra weight or uh, a book. I had a little notebook that I carried with me um, that was stuffed in my pack for most of mm -hmm. the trip. But by the end of the day, I always thought, oh, I should make some notes in it. And I never did. I made some notes on my phone a little bit, but not much. Okay. Yeah, that's probably one of my own regrets is I wish I had had the self-discipline to just like jot something down every day that it would have been nice to look back over that. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the things I have when I went, well, it's a long time ago. I have this uh, journal when I went to Asia, God, and I go in there and read it and I just howl at some of the things that I wrote because I was with my boyfriend at the time and we broke up. <laughs> <laughs> lots of juicy feelings in that that one. I should turn it into a book but uh yeah I know good read so I guess you didn't bring a book because that would be too much extra weight <laughs> no but part of the, the whole ultralighty thing to go back there again is is smartphones rock 
because everybody just uses their smartphone. So you have your smartphone and it is your content. You know, if you've got a data plan on your phone, which most people do, you know, if you had cell service, then you could like reconnect with the world. Um, I had, you know, apps and books downloaded to my phone. Okay. Um, at night. Um, and then everybody, ah, virtually everyone navigates the trail with an app called Far Out that has all the maps for the entire Pacific Crest Trail. Oh. There's water sources there, you know, there's all the trail towns, all, all the information you'd need um, is in this app. And then there are user comments. And so you could look ahead to, oh, there's supposed to be a water cache that breaks up this 40 mile water carry in the desert. Mm -hmm. Is there going to be water at the cache or do yeah. I need to get 40 miles of water instead of 20 miles of water? Yeah. And so you look ahead and see if people had left any notes saying, you know, it was, that was fantastic. You could look and say, oh, yesterday there were 40 carboys of water at the cache. I'm going to be okay. Or, oh God, yesterday the cache was down to like not much water. I better plan on care, not counting on that water cache. So especially yeah. in the desert, um, because when I started, I was kind of in the hiker bubble. You know, I started mm -hmm. sort of, people get permits for March, April, or May. They release 50 permits a day for that three-month period um, for people to through-hike the Pacific Crest Trail. And the long-distance permit means you don't have to get any regional or local permits for any of the places you go through. And you're mm -hmm. permitted to travel through the Sierra, which is otherwise quite locked down in terms of like permit availability. People will enter lotteries just to hike the Sierra. And, you know, be foiled year after year after year because everybody wants to go there because it's so stupidly beautiful. And anyway, is it? Distance, yeah, oh my God, it's mind blowing. But I digress. Um, the long distance permit <laughs> lets you do the whole trail, either north or southbound, you have to pick a direction um, and not have to worry about any of those other individual permits. It covers the whole thing. Right. Um, yeah. It's like, yeah. oh, that's smart. So you don't have to worry about it. You just start to finish, get all done. So did you meet any interesting characters since, oh, of course, the funniest, it was the people, the people were amazing. Like, I, I don't really want to walk the whole thing again, <laughs> but the appeal would be to go back for the people that you meet, like the other hikers, the trail angels, the trail angels are people that just out of the goodness of their heart, help hikers out. Um, you know, not asking for money. Sometimes you have to fight to give them gas money. Um, you know, they'll, they'll just like give you rides into town or they'll leave coolers with snacks and cold pop in them at like places where you wouldn't expect, or they'll just be oh. know, set up at the side of the trail with a barbecue, making hamburgers for people that walk by or coolers with beer in them. Like it's insane. People are so amazing. Yeah. Wow. Businesses in the little trail towns along the trail, like I mean, I don't know if you've ever worked a sort of front-facing customer service job, people can be so annoying and through hikers can be very entitled and, you know, kind of acting like they're special and we should do nice things for us. And I always said to like a lot of the businesses along the way, you guys are all like way nicer to us than we deserve because <laughs> people are just so nice. Yeah. Oh my God. So would you do that again? You said you wouldn't do it again. <laughs> I would, and I made some really good friends. Like I met the loveliest people hiking. I went down solo, started solo, knowing that I was gonna meet people. Like uh, friends yeah. and family at home were like, oh my God, you know, how can you do this by yourself? How dangerous? 
And I'm like, don't worry, it's going to be okay. Because you go down, you start walking, and you meet people who are going your pace. And gosh, look, at the last two water sources, I've met the same crowd because we're walking at the same pace. You get, yeah. to, you, know, you get to the next trail town. Oh, gosh, there's the same people again. Um, so you get to know people that hike at the pace you hike at. And so with any luck, you hit it off with somebody and you sort of start planning to hike together. And so like the first two days, I hiked with a woman um, who uh, was hoping to do the whole thing. I don't think she did. Her feet were a disaster after two days. And so we actually parted ways mm. after two days. We had to like sort out her horribly blistered foot problem. When I continued- New shoes? Uh, she, I think she got new shoes and, and she, she actually hadn't trained a lot for the hike. And so she oh. needed to slow down and, and go at a slower pace and, and take care of her feet. Um, wow. My feet stayed in pretty great shape the whole way from a blister perspective. Mm -hmm. And about three or four days in, I met another gang of five people that I hiked with for one of them for the next like 400 miles. Um, uh, and that they were, they were awesome. Really fun. One woman from BC, uh, uh, an older guy, his trail name was Charlie Horse. He turned <laughs> 72 on the trail. Whoa. Yeah, he had done the Appalachian Trail oh, a few years ago. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. And he came out to just hike the PCT and not necessarily through hike it, but certainly just keep on hiking. And I, I don't know if he finished or not. I should, I should message him and find out. Anyway, uh, he was pretty cool. And he had decided at, at one point, I, I heard from someone else that 20 mile days were as much as he was going to do. Cause like, if he did like 22 mile days, they just took too much out of him. And he was like 72. He's a oh, geez. <laughs> well, sounds like he's got lots of time anyways. <laughs> wow so what's your like the 500 mile mark and then yeah. uh we were just i was I, I was just hiking longer days than she was happy hiking at that point yeah. so we parted ways and then i hit the sierra which is around mile 700 um and going to the sierra most people will try and pair up with people you don't because because of the, you're going over mountain passes and the train is more rugged and there's yeah. there's like no easy you, you need to go forward or back or you get rescued by helicopter there's it's not like you can just pop into a town like the first stretch is going to be eight days long um, uh -huh. you're, you're away from civilization and so not an ideal place to hike by yourself not that there aren't people all around you but still you can yeah. hike by yourself you know, and there's gnarly river crossings and stuff. So, so I paired up with someone else. I paired up with uh, another guy my age-ish. You know, I think he's a fifty-ish year old guy um, from Guelph, Ontario. And oh, hey! For a few hundred miles of the Sierra, and then I wanted to start doing twenty-mile days, and he wanted to back off from the fifteen-mile days we were doing. So we parted ways. And so, so I'd sort of out hiked two really nice hiking partners, but I was, I was trying, I was hoping to finish in August. And at that point, my miles per day were not enough for that really uh -oh. awesome. I remember saying to people, I really want to finish in mid-August and, and them just looking at me like, oh, honey, like, what is that? <laughs> That's, That's nice. Like, I get the yes, dear kind That's of. That's delusional. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but I still really thought, oh God, if only there was a way, but I knew what the way was to do 30 plus mile days after the Sierra. Um, yeah which at that point seemed absolutely impossible. And yet I still had this delusional idea that I'd finish in mid-August. Well, didn't, wouldn't you feel that you could increase it 
since you've been hiking for so long or you're just really tired at that oh, point? Always just so tired. Like <laughs> the allergies, Did you take any days off? Every day would blow your mind. Like just so much up and so much down. Oh, and yeah. Really very rarely any flat. I mean, I'm really very much like training in the Gatineau's. I always joke to people that like, it's never flat here. <laughs> there is no flat, but the problem is there, it would be like, you're going to go up instead of going 400 feet, you might go up 5,000 feet um, every day. And at the end of the trail, it was, you know, in Washington, it was not uncommon to have seven or 8,000 feet of gain in a day. You know, I don't know what that is in meters. I, that's the problem. I did everything in miles and feet. Yeah. For that. Um, but yeah, like just incredible elevation gain. I was like climbing and climbing and climbing and climbing. And did you use poles? Huh? Yeah, trekking poles. Yeah. I, I really like trekking poles. Most, I would say more, more people use trekking poles than didn't. Yeah, I would use them too. They just save you. A little yeah, bit save your body but more in the sierra they are actually vital for safety for river crossings there were river crossings where the water was like you know a raging torrent that like was deep enough that the top the bottom of my running shorts got wet um so uh, a past mid thigh where you have mm -hmm. to be you really don't want to get swept away like that would just be really bad <laughs> yeah it would be really bad <laughs> help you stay balanced yeah. So Kim made it back and then I saw her at Halliburton and oh, that was September. Yeah. And that was uh, September. Yeah. yeah, that was like a month after I finished. Yeah. I remember seeing Patty, who was her partner at, mm -hmm. uh, at the event. And uh, she's like, yeah, Kim came because she, Patty was the one who told me about your beginning. And then I'd see her throughout the summer. We'd ride together. She's like, oh yeah, Kim is still like out there. And I'm like, what is Kim? Four months that's crazy and then they came and they kicked butt uh in the uh, in the in the couples event the two-person women's two-person race and uh yeah and we hung out the tents and uh now she's straight into so, so did you come back feeling stronger after you slept probably for about two weeks I was so happy just to, for a little while I wanted all I wanted to do was sleep because I was getting up I I, I start on this at the start of the trail I was getting about 5 30 in the morning to be hiking by 6 or 6 30 just to get good miles in before it got hot yeah I started hiking around mile 900 with another older guy um and he was really fit like I finally went from people who I was out hiking to someone I had to basically chase, <laughs> someone who motivated me to work really hard to keep up. And I really have no book to thank that I finished in 131 days. Uh, if I hadn't been hiking with him, I would not have done 30 plus mile days. Wow. He literally convinced me that it was possible because I, <laughs> I wanted to do it, but 25 mile days were just leaving me feeling pretty wrecked. And then every yeah. once in a while we'd throw in a 30 mile day and I would be utterly trashed the next day. And, and I still knew at that point, oh no, I need to be doing 30 mile days every day. Oh my God. Did you take a day off? At any days off? Pardon? You take any days off? Yeah. Yeah. About every, about once a week, I would take a zero day. 
And so it would, the, the way the days off are called is it's a zero day if you don't hike any miles that day. So say you mm -hmm. hike into town in the evening, the very next day you stay in town the whole day and then you sleep in town and hike out the You hike to the laundromat. Zero day is a zero day because you hiked zero miles. A Nero is you get up in the morning, you hike six miles into town, you stay in town that night, that day because you hike like six miles or 10 miles or whatever, 20 miles, that would be a Nero. Um, so as the as we went on through Oregon and Washington, I mostly did Nero's, not zeros. Um, just because like we were feeling the pressure. We both wanted to finish in August um, very much. Yeah. And, I, and I assume like- were becoming more like, more like something they were never they were never easy but they were i knew i could do them yeah i would like, imagine oh, at the I end you're just like i do 30s like yeah i do 30 mile days and people would say you know because we, we'd all be asking each other you know what are you doing and it'd be like, I do yeah yeah. <laughs> that is 30 so that's like 50 kilometers like like the last the last few months of the trail I was doing darn close to 50 kilometers a day, almost every full day, which still blows my mind. I can't believe I did that. I believe it because you're probably like, I'll just walk and walk until, because I want to finish so friggin' hard. And that's with like a pack that probably never weighed, you know, less than 18 pounds and really a lot of elevation gain and loss. Like Washington, a lot of people drop their mileage in Washington and do the yeah. Because there's so much elevation gain and loss each day. It's it's insane. Like over the course of the entire trail, to walk from Mexico to Canada northbound, you climb up 488,000 feet or 489,000 feet and you descend 488,000 feet. Or it's, it's something like the equivalent of climbing from sea level to the top of Everest 17 times. It's, oh my God. It's crazy. It's completely crazy. Did you know that going in there? Yeah, yeah, I did. I did. I did. <laughs> and I and still stupidly thought, oh yeah, I can do a fast through hike. That so. sounds so doable. <laughs> I've done Mount Marcy it, once. None of it makes sense, but it worked. <laughs> the cool well, thing is, there was another Chelsea girl hiking it. So I don't know if you know, Bonnie Baxter and uh, Chris, Chris, what's Chris's last name? I mean, Chris and Bonnie. Um, what? Chris Rogers and Bonnie Baxter, they have two daughters and their younger daughter, Zoe, was on the trail. She started two, two weeks after me and she finished, I don't know, she finished a, a week or two before I finished. Uh, she did an, a blistering fast through hike. She, she was by herself? She did, she did um, connected steps from Mexico to Canada. She didn't miss anything. I missed some sections. There was a fire closure that I got shoveled around uh -huh. uh, from the lion's head fire that was two years ago. Um, and there were odd little bits here and there where uh, where Notebook and I would go, oh, that looks like a nice alternate, you know, so it might be a, a, a section where you're not on the PCT officially, but it's got something lovely and scenic or something. Um, and we, uh, we okay. could definitely take alternates instead of the actual PCT. Um, there was one time where there was a big storm system coming in, so we bailed. We're like, I'm not set up to camp in the snow. And I'm not going to. <laughs> we're like, we're too old for this shit. So, you yeah. know, we hiked down Forest Service roads to a highway and walked along the highway until we could get a hitch into town. And, you know, so we missed something like 10 miles of trail, but we also missed camping in the snow in a snowstorm in the mountains. Um, 
not sorry about that. <laughs> and I, I, I had a big steak a dinner double, and double fries. Yeah. Well, we're so excited to have you back. And it was really nice to see you and actually connect this way. Cause I don't think I've really actually sat and chatted with you for like a long time. I mean, we've always just been kind of in passing as like in events and races and I've seen you and, and things. So it was really nice to see you at Halliburton and just sort of catch up. And I'm, I'm, and I just want to thank you for being on the podcast because you are really inspirational. Cause when I saw you hiking, um, no, do your backpack, back hike, back bike packing. And I was like, Oh, Kim's doing this. So I did like, so, so I tried a hundred K ride from my house to, we have a hunt camp and I had a, a little, a back pannier, not back pannier, like a, a sit on top pack. And oh my God, my first run through the Gatineau park, it like basically ripped off like the, the straps just ripped off. And I'm just like, oh my God. And I'm like, I hope I find a bungee cord. I hope I find a bungee cord. And would you know, I was biking on the road and I biked over a bungee cord. I stopped, I picked it up and I slung my bag back on it. I was just like, whoa, Kim. I'm the clearly just under geared <laughs> for this. <laughs> and bike packing trips is yeah, there's always something that goes wrong, but you realize, you know, you can be resourceful. You're gonna you're gonna sort something out. I know, and I'm I'm gonna be able to do 100k in four hours, just like I kind of do on my road bike. It took me like six hours. My husband was like went looking for me, and but oh, I, then I'm like, so that there's a bit of a realization there too, because the kilometers are not as it seems when you're road cycling to hitting gravel and biking with a a back yeah, a packed after bike. Being with a loaded bike, you totally have to dial back your expectations. <laughs> Yeah, so I was just glad I got there before the sun went down. Anyways, <laughs> but that was uh, that was my little back, my little experience. And I've asked my kids, "Hey, would you want to do something with me?" They're like, "No." <laughs> so I'm still um. Uh, so now I've gotten into gravel, and I'm amping my way up. And maybe maybe I'll borrow your stuff if you let me, and I'll try like a night or two. Give me, give me a little route to go just to test it out. You're reminding me. Um, I think it was la not last summer, the summer before. I did a little two-day bike packing trip with two of my kids. Oh. Before, we we uh, loaded up our bikes and we parked in Venosta, I think. Oh yeah, we Venosta, yeah. Yeah, and rode north on the Velo Route des Drivers. Yeah. And went to a place called Carpe Diem um adventures or something they've got these little cabins um, oh or you can or you can camp in like one of those suspended hammock tent things um really yeah, fantastic and we just did a sort of an out and back um so that would be a you know if you, especially if you wanted to do it with with uh, your kids yeah that sounds more doable because some is nice because it's it's flat yeah, because one other person that I talked to, they're like, you know what, you don't have to camp. You can like bike to locations. <laughs> so I'm like, oh yeah, I guess you could if you want to spend extra money. But it's true. You can yeah. bike to yeah, I'm gonna check that out. Carpe diem. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm like, 
we're going to be outside and we're going to be crammed into this two person tent, all three of us. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> no, thanks. <laughs> oh, this has been awesome. Thanks so much, Kim. And I hope our audience has uh, been inspired to go out and try something totally uncomfortable like Kim has. And <laughs> <laughs> but she inspired me at that time. And I was like, that is so cool because it's different when you know of somebody who's gone out and done it, then you can kind of reach out and go, Hey, what, uh, what the hell did you do to get to do that? But thanks a lot, Kim. And thanks to our audience for tuning in. And, uh, yeah, we'll have to bring you back if you have another big, uh, oh yeah. So last question, what's next on the radar with regards to do you have anything that you're planning for next year? Is it going to be a, a recovery year and then you're going to? Uh, I decided I'm old enough to be a snowbird and I'm going to drive down to Arizona in February and bring my mountain bike because I, I can't set up my gravel bike for tubeless. They're just, the rims aren't right. But my mountain bike is set up tubeless because it's all stabby things down there in the snow. I'm going to go to the Sonoran Desert and go bike packing. There's a, a couple of loop routes that are close to Phoenix that I've got oh. my eye on. Another one south of Tucson um, as well that's near the border of whatever south of Arizona, sorry, geographically. I think that's a, uh, well, Anyway, I picked New Arizona Mexico? partly because I do know some people who live there and it's there's a lot of bikepacking routes there that will be uh, warm enough to ride at in, in February. In the winter, yeah, because in the summer it's like it's death. Elevation that I don't have to worry about no higher up. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's my plan. Oh, that's I'm super not cool. Maybe it's pretty chonky and I, I'm not actually a very skilled technical mountain biker. <laughs> um, but especially yeah. all loaded down. Well we'll have yeah. to have you back and uh sharing sharing that little uh adventure on our uh, podcast episode. So thanks a lot, Kim. And thanks everyone for tuning in. Have yourself an amazing day, everyone. Bye. Thank you so much for spending this time with me on the Secrets from the Saddle podcast. Learning more about sighting people, places, and things that make cycling such an exciting sport. I am so glad you stopped by today. Please leave me a review if you feel so moved to do so. I would love to hear your feedback. And if you could take one second to share this episode with someone you think would enjoy it, I would be forever grateful. Also, if you could please leave me a review if you feel so moved by going to iTunes and leaving me an honest thought and an honest comment telling me what you think and most importantly, tell me what you'd like to hear more of. It would really help me to bring more great, inspiring cycling stories to you. Until then, have an amazing day. Make sure you ride your bike. And don't forget to visit my YouTube channel if you'd like to see the full version of this podcast live.